in Christ, there is one. That in Christ, all are equal, no matter one's ethnicity, race, class, origin, background, gender, all in Christ are one. We're to operate as, as one body. Then Paul lists this prayer, the prayer that we looked at last week in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. Paul records this prayer for the church in Ephesus where he's praying for them to experience these theological truths. He prays, he bows his knee before every father on earth in his name that according uh, to the grace of God, he might grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your heart. He talks about us now knowing the love of Christ, which we talked about means not only knowing intellectually, but experiencing. And I think there's a sense in which this passage that we're getting to now is Paul kind of moving from the head. He prays in verses chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 for the heart, that we would experience what we know in our hearts, and then he moves out to our hands. This is, this is kind of the flow of thought. It seems like that Paul is laying out in this passage for us this morning. And this is important for us to realize as well, that growing as a Christian does not simply mean growing in our head knowledge, growing in the right doctrines, what uh, church leaders or uh, scholars call orthodoxy, like right doctrine, right belief. It also includes the heart, right affections, right desires, right motives, right passions. But it also includes right orthopraxy, right practice, right action, right doing, growing in your head, your heart, and your hands. And as a church, as a newly forming church plant, as a growing church, we don't want to be imbalanced in this. We don't want to just grow in our head knowledge, and yet our hearts are far from God, we have no affections for God, and we don't really do anything about the things that we know. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think we want to just know James 1.27, uh, the pure worship that God accepts is taking care of the orphans and widows and thinking, man, that's a, that's a cool concept. I think we want to really feel empathy and passion for the hurting, for the homeless, for the widows, and then we want to do something about it. So Paul lays out this truth to, he prays in, verses, in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 to experience it, and then the beginning of chapter 4, it kind of serves as a transition piece in the letter. He's now urging the church in Ephesus to do something. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, which I think Paul includes this is in there because uh, Paul was so willing and so sold out for this truth, this gospel, that he was willing to be in prison for it. So I think there's a sense in which we should take Paul seriously for what he's talking about here. It says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walking in this sense, it's, it's getting at living or behaving in a certain manner. That's what Paul is talking about. I want you to walk. I want you to live. I want you to behave in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of Christ, worthy of being in Christ, worthy of the gospel. It's similar to what Paul writes in Philippians 1, verse 27. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is urging the, the church, the church in Ephesus, believe in a manner deserving of the condition you're in. In other words, live out of your identity in Christ. Be who you are. Do who you are. This seems to be Paul's main point, like the rest of these verses in, in chapter 2 through 16 comes out of this urge, this exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, urging the Christians, because they are in Christ, to act like it. Does that make sense? Sometimes I think if you are any familiarity with Christianity or you've grown up in the church, sometimes we can get this kind of flipped around. We can, we can get this flipped around so that we think it's just about doing and, and kind of working hard to do what Paul lists out for us. But if we don't have that foundation of what Paul lists out in chapter 1 through 3, our identity being in Christ, we're now working from an identity instead of for it, then we can get all messed up in this. So this is really important. This is why I spent some time on the front end to kind of describe where Paul has come from in this passage, because it's foundational to know, to have your identity rooted in Christ, and then know how do you respond out of that. So uh, your acceptance, your approval, your love as a Christian does not come from your obedience or your striving to obey rules. But because you are accepted, therefore you seek to obey the rules, right? We talked about that last week. The gospel is not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And this is what Paul is eating at this, this week in this chapter, the obedience part. And this morning, we're going to look at two foundational questions from the passage. Number one, what does it look like? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? What does that look like? And number two, how do we do that? How does that happen? 
So starting off, number one, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? I think Paul lists out in verses 1, verses 13, verses 15. We'll explain this as we work through the text. But walking in a manner worthy of the calling means becoming more like Jesus. It means becoming more like Jesus, reflecting him, knowing him, representing him. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, he is in Christ, ought to walk in the same way as which he walked. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we're thinking about this passage and we're thinking about what, what is Paul getting at? What is he wanting us to do? He's urging a manner worthy of the calling means walking to Jesus walking closer to him, becoming like him. Now, if you've been a Christian for any number of years or months, uh, it might be good at this point to take a good self-assessment of where you're at in the process. Where would you say you are on this? Just starting? Yeah, I've, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been walking with Jesus so well. I know him, and I'm becoming like him really well. And to me, if you have that kind of response, it means you're actually more immature, right? Because you're boasting in how mature you are. But let me just present some questions before you to, to have a good uh, assessment of your heart. Where are you at this morning? Are you becoming more like Christ? And this is the way I think you can think about it. Are you humbler now? Are you more humble than you were a year ago? Are you happier now than you were a year ago? Do you have more joy now than you had a year ago? Do you have more patience now than you did a year ago? And maybe what would even be more helpful and maybe a self-assessment is if you have a significant other, if you have a spouse, a, uh, a girlfriend, boyfriend, a, a husband or wife, you have a close friend, you have a family member, uh, if you really want to step out and get bold, ask them these questions. Do you see me growing in patience? Do you see me growing in gentleness? Do I have more self-control? Don't like look at your spouse right now and talk about it because we don't want to have any fights breaking out in the sanctuary. Do you have people in your life that would help you assess your heart? Are you becoming more like Christ? Maybe an application this week is to go and ask these type of questions to someone who knows you well. So... Uh, walking in a manner worthy of the calling means becoming like Christ, reflecting him, knowing him, becoming more like him. Uh, so let's look at the second question, what Paul lists out, I think, in, in this chapter. How do we do that? How do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, from chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, we can conclude that this happens through the study of scriptures, through saturating yourself in the truths of the gospel, and through prayer. So we can't negate that, but Paul focuses here on, on something a little different. He's focusing on walking with other Christians. He focuses on becoming more like Jesus in community, in the church. He focuses on our individual and corporate responsibilities. I think Paul lays out in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, that growing into Christ, growing in spiritual maturity, doesn't simply happen through individual care and hard work. Like There's a sense in which Paul's talking about here, we need others. We need to grow like Christ. It happens through deep relationships in the context of local church in community. It happens where unity and intimacy with members of the local church is increasing and getting deeper, and it happens in the context of community. That's what Paul's talking about here, a close community. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, um, I believe in Jesus. I want to know him. I want to experience his love. I want to become like him. How do I do that? If you're here this morning and you don't have a community, you don't have a church, you don't have a group of people that are pouring into you, this is, this is where I think Paul's getting at this morning. And, and as a mountain church, we would love to be that with you and for you. We would love to be the community of people that you can, we can help you become Jesus, like Jesus with, and you can help us become like Jesus with. So how do we do that? Number one, uh, happens in community. It doesn't happen just stopping by a Sunday gathering or isolating yourself. It happens in community. And Paul says, number one, and first off, we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We grow into Christ by actively maintaining unity. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. 
Now, interestingly enough, in Paul's time and day, humility was not really valued or prized. Like it was actually kind of looked down upon. Boasting, pride, arrogance was, was more valued in, in a culture. And Paul's talking about you know, humility, but also gentleness, acting in a way that's, that's gentle, uh, mild, considerate, tender, patience, bearing with one another, enduring with one another through the difficulties, through the awkwardness, through different uh, personalities rubbing together, bearing with one another in the bond of peace. And one of the ways that this happens is, is as we live out of our identity in the gospel. Right, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I'd, Daniel, you asked me those questions about if I'm growing in Christ, and yeah, I'd, I think I'm still as impatient as I was like a year from now. What's the deal with that? A way that we can grow in patience is we meditate, we reflect, we saturate ourselves in the gospel. When we come to the gospel, when we come to the foot of the cross, we see, man, Jesus was so patient with me. God was so patient with me. That transforms us to be more patient people. We realize how patient God is with us. That transforms us to be patient with others. You could do the same with humility, with gentleness, with uh, patience, with endurance. And Paul says we need to be eager we need to have this intense desire to maintain unity. Now notice, Paul doesn't say that it's our job to create unity. He says that happens from the Spirit, but we have a job in maintaining unity. And a helpful way that I was thinking about this this week is, uh, if any of you guys have, if you are married or if you have a, a deep relationship with a significant other or even any kind of relationship in general, intimacy, unity with another individual does not happen just out of the blue. I don't, at least it hasn't happened that way in my life. <laughs> like to have intimacy and closeness with my wife, it takes hard work. Painful work. <laughs> when I get to a, a season, a time in, in my marriage with my wife in which I'm not really trying, I'm kind of just hoping that intimacy will just happen, you know, like that. It's just a matter of days, weeks before some blow-up happens. We fight, uh, not putting the work in to maintaining a healthy relationship. This is what Paul is getting at. <coughs> Unity with a church, oneness as a church, happens by the Spirit, but we have a job in maintaining that unity. We have to actively seek that unity. Because we can definitely mess it up. We can gossip about one another. We can slander. We can uh, talk negatively about other people. We can hold grudges. We can become bitter. All those things destroy the unity, which is why uh, the Bible has really strong words to talk about gossips and slanderers and divisiveness in the church. Number one, we must walk in a manner worthy of calling by actively maintaining unity, and it takes work. And it seems like Paul focuses on this foremost because if as Christians we do not individually and corporately seek to do this, we are in fact not reflecting God. Because that seems like where Paul goes in, uh, in, in verse 4. He says there's one body. One body of Christ the church. There's one spirit. There's one hope. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So you get the sense of since God is one, since there's one faith, one Lord, uh, one hope, the church should reflect that, that reality. The church should be united with one another. And I think practically what this means is that a church that is divided actually reflects more of Satan than does of God. This is why we need to be so in, intentional and active in maintaining unity. It's the way that we reflect the unity of God. We reflect God himself. Since God is dwelling perfectly with himself in harmony and unity. The church is to do the same as we reflect him, as we become like him. And Paul moves on in verses 7 through 10 to describe Christ's provision, Christ's gifts, Christ's victory. Christ's gifts to the church to help them become more like Christ. It says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, this is not talking about God's grace of salvation, but God's grace in regards to giving particular spiritual gifts to his members. He's talking about God has given each member of the church and the body gifts as he has chosen, as he has deemed necessary for the benefit, for the blessing, for the encouragement, for the advancement, the building up of his church. Paul then quotes Psalm 68, where he says in verse 8, 
Then he ascended on high. He led a a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. And Paul interprets this, this psalm in light of Christ. He goes on to explain in verse 9 that he ascended. What does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? And he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He's talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the one who came down from heaven. He descended to earth. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and died. He defeated sin and Satan and death by rising from the third day on, from the grave. He proved himself victor and he appeared to his disciples and then he ascended into heaven where he sits right now ruling and reigning. And Paul is saying that he's giving gifts out of this, out of this, this, uh, this, he's the victorious, he's the conqueror, he gives these spills of victory, these gifts, he gives them to the people. And what's awesome about this in verse 11, these gifts that he gives to the church are people. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds. Now, how many of you would say right now that you have a really clear understanding of what all these words mean and what functions they have? Christian? Just one? I want to be honest with you guys. I still don't really know exactly. Like, I, I still don't have a clear what, what Paul is getting at here. I mean, there's so many beliefs and ideas on, as I was reading commentaries, as I was studying about this, what these words mean. Uh, there's guys that I love and respect that believe the Bible that have similar doctrine to me that would probably disagree on on how this plays out in the life of the church. So what I wanted to do is kind of just walk through what I found in my study this week on what these words mean and then get at what I think Paul's main point through all of this is. So let's start off, number one, talking about apostles. What is an apostle? Does every church have one? Do we have these titles at the Mountain Church? You know, prophets and apostles and evangelists and apostles and prophets. I think I said those words a couple times again, but... When it comes to apostle, there's kind of two different ways that we can talk about it. Uh, Talk about this word in two different ways, almost two different words. There's apostle with a capital A, you could say, capital A apostle. And these are those who walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. These are those, uh, are in Paul, he had a sense he was given special revelation uh, by seeing the resurrected Christ. The apostles had seen the risen Christ personally, and they were given a special commission by Jesus to be the foundation of the church, to establish the church. The apostles had Christ given authority to speak, to write words of God with equal authority to the Old Testament scripture. The apostles laid the foundation of the church. Paul wrote this in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20, where he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles, capital A apostles, helped lay the foundation of the church. And once the foundation had been laid, the apostles were no longer needed. This seems to be the kind of majority view. Uh, There are some people who claim that there still are apostles. They would even call themselves apostles, that they say they have uh, God-given authority to speak uh, scripture in a sense. And that is not the belief that I hold uh, at all. Uh, But some people would say that. Uh, I think based on 1 Corinthians 15.8 that Paul seems to conclude that he himself was the last apostle. So I don't believe there's any more capital A apostles. So that capital A apostle is a kind of restricted term for uh, those 12. And there's no more apostles today. But on the other hand, lowercase a apostle, the word apostle just means someone who's commissioned, someone who's sent out. So there is a sense in which all Christians are apostles. Uh, Matthew 28, John 20, 21, it talks about the, the reality that Christians are sent by Jesus into the world. So there's a sense in which all Christians are apostles. Um, it doesn't seem like this is the sense of the word that Paul is using in this passage. That's my understanding of it. Uh, but it doesn't negate the fact that God has given and gifted certain individuals with more apostolic gifts, you could say. And a helpful way to think about this, I think, uh, is like frontier missionaries, uh, church planters, those type of apostolic uh, gifts, those frontier ministries. In a sense, they are apostolic, but I don't think it would be wise to call them apostles. I think you know, missionaries, church planters is, is a fine term. So apostles, let's look at prophets. Equally as debated and controversial, there's debate on what this word means too, what sense of the word Paul used here. Now, sometimes I think when we think of the word prophet, we can think about someone who predicts future events. 
And that's true, but that, wasn't, that isn't their kind of primary function or operation. The primary mission or function of, an, of a prophet is someone who proclaims the word of God. Uh, times the prophet is one who proclaims the word of God in encouragement, who urges people to do something, who warns them, who explains, or more rarely predicts future events. And the teaching of the New Testament prophets and apostles laid the foundation of the church. And just like I think with the apostles, there are certain aspects, unique tasks of those prophets that have been discontinued. So in the same way, um, I don't necessarily... I don't believe that I could stand up here today and say, I'm a prophet, and this is what God says authoritatively. That's not his word. Now, there are different pastors and uh, religions and sects of Christianity that would believe something different, but that is the belief that I hold to. A guy by the name of Warren Wiersbe says it like this. Some scholars argue that since the early church did not have complete Bibles New Test- and the New Testament wasn't completely written or finalized, prophets were necessary for the local church to know, discover, and obey God's will. God, through his spirit, would give special revelation to his prophets. Christians today do not get their knowledge immediately from the Holy Spirit, but immediately through the Spirit teaching the word. With the apostles, the prophets had laid the foundational ministry in the early church, and they are not needed today. That's one sense of the word. But there's another sense in which a prophet uh, is, it can be described in the New Testament or of a general term. Paul talks about this in, in his letter to the, the Corinthian church. Uh, other scholars would argue that the construction in this passage here in, in Ephesians 4 is a little different than the Greek word that are a little different than the construction of the Greek in chapter 2, verses 20. So Paul could be referring to more of a broader sense of what a, a prophet does, more general sense seen in the New Testament in Acts and other letters. Prophets are those who communicate a message that is appropriate to the situation facing the church. And we see this in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul refers to prophecy that is more general, talking at a proclamation of something that God brings to mind through his spirit, revealed to the prophet. Uh, But it's not the authoritative words of God, it's human words. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that prophecy must be tested. It must be analyzed because it contains error. It's not the authoritative word of God, it's human words. It needs to be tested. Finally, there's others still that believe that this idea of prophet, prophecy, just refers to like preaching. First to preaching and teaching it, to build up, to bring encouragement, to bring consolation to the gathered church. A lot of different beliefs on what, what that means, prophet. Uh, now, as we get through the other three, it's a little, uh, pe- people seem to kind of come together on what they think it means, evangelist. Right? Every, people agree primarily that evangelist, someone who preaches the gospel. Uh, one scholar said it like this, all ministers should do the work of an evangelist, but this does not mean that all ministers are evangelists. This is again, the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church and the evangelists built on it by winning the lost to Christ. Of course, in the early church, every believer was a witness and so should we be today. But there are people today who have been gifted with evangelism, but the fact that a believer does not possess this gift does not excuse them from being burdened for lost souls or witnessing to them. I think talking about evangelists, people who are specially gifted in proclaiming the gospel. doesn't mean that, well, I'm not an evangelist, so I don't, I don't get to preach the gospel. That's not what it means at all. It just means that I think God has gifted certain people with uh, this gift of being an evangelist. Uh, shepherds and teachers. Scholars argue that uh, there's a little bit of confusion of the Greek construction of this word. It could be referring to two separate offices or one that's kind of related, closely related, um, even if the two are separate, they should be related. They are related since teaching is such a big part of pastoral ministry. Shepherds are those who care, who pass through the people, teachers instruct from the word. So as we work through all of these five, or all of these five offices, gifts, whatever you're, wherever you land in this, and you can read books about this that, that highlight this, or you can take a test that will say you're more of an apostle, you're more of a prophet, you're more of a shepherd teacher. Have any of you guys taken a test like this? Whatever your understanding of this is, I think what Paul's point is, is that Jesus has given gifts, people to the church, to equip them for ministry. That's what Paul is getting at here. I, I, I don't think Paul is trying to give us something to try to trip us up or to distract us with, oh, you know, what is Daniel? Is he, a, is he a prophet? Is he an evangelist? Is he a, a teacher? Is he a shepherd? What am I? What do I, what do I put myself in? Because I don't think this is an exhaustive list. The point of what Paul is saying is that God has 
gifted leaders to the church to equip them. And what ties all of these offices together, what is the glue that holds these together, is that they are to be centered, primary focused on ministering the word of God. They are to be devoted to the scriptures. What unites this list together is that a church, the church is gifted with servants of the word. That much we can agree on. We can, we can uh, be united in that understanding. The word is to be at the center of the church, built upon Christ, and God gives leaders to the church to be servants of that word. We talked about in, uh, listing out in verses 11, then he gets to chapter, or verse 12, excuse me, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The church is to be equipped to be servants with the word by servants of the word. So what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, reproof, excuse me, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This means the job of leaders in the church is to equip the people of God, prepare them with the word to do works of service, to be ministers. Where minister literally means servants. And it's interesting, what Paul doesn't say is that God gives these gifts, these people, these leaders to the church so that they do the ministry and the saints sit and watch. There is a sense in which, um, as, as a pastor, we can kind of pride ourselves in how much we can do. And I myself have fallen into this. I've seen other pastors that they don't equip the saints to do ministry because they enjoy doing it so much they don't want to share the load. In the other sense, there's also, I've talked with Christians and uh, church people that say, oh yeah, well, we, we have a pastor, we pay him, or we have church staff. They're the ones who do the work. That's why we pay them. <coughs> whatever your experiences or whatever your understanding of church leadership, my role as a pastor, what Paul lays out here, I think is pretty clear. From the word, my job is to equip you to do, to serve to be prepared to serve, to prepared to be servants, prepared to be ministers. This kind of flies in the face of our consumeristic American uh, Christian, a lot of Christian culture that, you know, you just, well, I just show up on Sunday, I drop my tithe into the offering box and I go about my day. And the pastor, you know, he, we pay him the big bucks to do those, to do everything that we don't want to do. Paul says that we're, the leaders are to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Practically, I think what this means is that when we learn something, we're to put it into practice. Equipped. Paul doesn't say he gives these teachers, these servants of the word, to fill up the brains and the knowledge of saints. The sense in which it's, it's there, it, you're equipped to do, equipped to go, equipped to, to uh, be servants. So number one, uh, so excuse me, secondly, the second point will be growing, we grow to be like Christ by being equipped to do the work of ministry. I think that's what Paul gets at. Number two, we grow into Christ by being equipped to do the work of ministry. Paul continues in verse 13, he says, until we all attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What this verse is getting at, I think, is that Jesus is our vision. Jesus is our gauge. When we're talking about what does it mean to become mature Christians, it means to become like Jesus. That's kind of the, the bar. The temptation, uh, I think, for Christians specifically in the Northwest. I grew up here. I grew up in the church, although I wasn't saved until uh, God kind of saved me out of church, out of religion, out of moralism. The temptation I've seen in my uh, my assessment of churches in the Northwest is there, there, we know this reality that we live in a pagan place, right? Like sin is celebrated in Seattle. The, the amount of population that attends church is, is 5% or lower on any given Sunday. So the sense that we, we know if you, if you are a Christian, if you are someone who, who's grown up in church, you believe in the gospel, you know that you're kind of a minority here. But there's a sense in which that it can kind of lead to a pride or a, uh, a self-righteousness because we, we see ourselves, 
we look out at those terrible pagan people outside of the church and we say, well, I'm not that bad. And we're content with where we are. Like instead of looking at our gauge at Jesus, we look at the world and we say, well, (laughs) I'm better than them, so I'm content. You, any of you guys would agree with me on this assessment? Mm-hmm. I've even felt it in my own... I've, I've, we have to fight against it, I think, being in Seattle, being in the Northwest, being in the Puget Sound. What is our gauge? What is our bar? Are we content with where we are? Are we seeking to grow like Christ? Are we seeing that Jesus is our vision? He is our goal. He is our gauge. Paul says, as we grow up into Christ, as we, this process of maturity that will happen all throughout our life, becoming like Christ, this ongoing pursuit to Christ with others in community, Paul says that we would no longer become or be children. The word there is, could be translated in, like infantile, 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 infants. The word could be befitting or characteristic of an infant. So Paul is praying. I want you to grow up, being helped, being equipped by these leaders. I want you to grow up so that you're no longer immature, so that you're no longer spiritual infants. And Paul says, he described these infants, they're they're tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful seams. Uh, One of the characteristics of someone who's spiritually immature is that they're not discerning. They're kind of carried about by every wind of doctrine. And a good way to think about this is with a, with a real baby, a newborn, right? A newborn won't necessarily know if you're feeding them good food or poison, right? Unless the poison is really bad tasting, I guess. But there's a sense in which, as a parent, you kind of have to protect what your kid eats, right? Like, don't eat rat poison. That's not good for you. Have good food. And we have to kind of monitor what food they intake, right? If you're not a parent, you know maybe a little bit about kids to know that, yeah, you know, kids, they need help from parents to eat and to know what to eat. They need to be fed. Real babies can't say, well, this is the good food, this is the bad food, this is the poison, so uh, you know, I'm just going to eat some poison here and be okay. They don't have discernment. And this is what Paul is saying about those who are spiritually immature. They can't tell the difference between good doctrine and bad doctrine, or between uh, worthless doctrine or deadly teaching. This is why the leadership of the church is so important in guarding and helping and protecting the, the theology, the doctrine of the church. This is why I think, I mean, or it, it's clear to me in the scriptures, this is why that the teachers are held with a higher standard. It'll be, uh, they're going to be judged more strictly. And God is going to hold the, the elders, the teachers, those who instruct from the word of God more strictly uh, based on what they teach because I think of this reality. Because in, unless you're familiar with the scriptures, unless you know and understand theology, you can be blown around, you can be deceived. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I don't even know what theology is. What does that word mean? I don't really even know where to find Ephesians in my Bible. This is not at the time of condemning you or, or putting you down to discourage you. It's just saying that uh, there is great trust that you have to have in your leadership if you are spiritually mature to feed you well, to give you good doctrine. I think we can safely conclude also from verse 14 of what spiritual maturity looks like. If Paul describes what immaturity looks like, we can contrast that with spiritual maturity. Those who are spiritually mature know their Bibles. They are sharp, they are acute in Scripture, they are theologically sound and discerning. Those who are spiritually mature are stable. They're not up and down. They're not carried back and forth. They're stable. You could say they know how to uh, follow through on decisions. They know how to handle suffering. They can recognize and sniff out sinful schemes and craftiness, what it means to be spiritually mature. Then Paul continues in verse 15 on how we can grow up into Christ. Number three, we grow into Christ by speaking the truth in love. It says in verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. This is critical. This is really important, critical to our spiritual, spiritual maturity, speaking the truth in love, truth and love being together. I would say, I would argue they have to be together. 
One without the other is deadly. One without the other is hurtful. One, the, one without the other does not lead to spiritual maturity. Speaking the truth without love is hurtful and damaging. Not speaking the truth at all is also deadly. And it seems to be that there's kind of two categories that people fall into this, right? We even have names for them. And if you're familiar with the church or uh, you're familiar with Christianese, the language that Christians can use in the church, uh, we even have names for it in our churches, right? Any of you heard, I'm a grace giver or I'm a truth teller? Heard these words? Some of us? We put ourselves in these categories. Well, I, don't, I don't really like to speak the truth because, you know, I'm a grace giver. Well, I don't really have to be loving and gracious because, you know, I'm a truth teller. And I hope from this passage that you would please remove those terms from your vocabulary. <laughs> they're both wrong. I, they're both, they both have their pitfalls. They both have their downfalls. I used to think about myself as I would even, because I, I, just to confess, I would use this term about myself. I'm a grace giver. And I would kind of pride myself even in being more loving. Like, uh, my wife is uh, more on the other spectrum. I have people, other people in my life that are, that are very black and white and blunt, and they just say it how it is. And I would almost kind of pride myself in, yeah, they can come across harsh. Like, Stephanie, sometimes when she talks to me, like, it really hurts, and I don't like it. So I'm, I'm better than her because I'm more loving. I'm guessing, um, just based on the culture here, we don't really like conflict, we really like to be comfortable, that there's probably more of us in this camp, right? And this, I'm totally off base. More of us are grace givers. More of us kind of pride ourselves in being loving. We don't, we don't really want to be awkward. We don't want to tell the truth. We don't want to hurt someone. Uh, we don't want to make things uh, difficult or challenging. And what would happen is, even if I saw my friend or my family do something wrong, I knew it would be bad. They needed to hear the truth. I would avoid doing so, and I would think I was being loving. The problem was I was priding myself in being a loving person, not because I was speaking truth at all, but because I was being neglectful. I was being selfish, really. I didn't want to offend someone. I didn't want to hurt a relationship that was beneficial for me for saying something that would maybe harm that. I valued comfort and I avoided conflict because I was selfish. And this is love without truth is wrong. It's deadly. A pastor by the name of Tim Keller says it like this. He tells a story in a sermon. First of all, think of this. Love without truth is deadly. When you say, well, I love people, but I don't want to tell them the truth because I don't want to hurt. If you say I'm loving them, but you're not telling the truth, it's deadly. Do you know why? We can't know ourselves unless somebody from the outside, a person with another eye, tells us. He says, I'll show you how old I am. A few years ago, it was fairly unusual to hear yourself on a tape recorder or to hear yourself on some other kind of recording. I remember when I was a teenager, hearing myself on a tape recorder. I remember even in the early days of our ministry, hearing myself on a tape recorder of a sermon, turning to my wife. We were pretty newly wed. And I remember turning to my parents, turning to my wife, and I was saying, gee whiz, what was wrong? Did I have a sore throat? Was I sick? Why does my voice sound so high and tinny and whiny? <laughs> and he's getting at this reality. How many people like to hear themselves talk? A couple? Just one. Well, for the rest of us, right? It's not something we normally like to hear. Well, when Tim says this, why does my voice sound so tim and tinny and whiny? Everybody said, that's how you always sound. The reason why when you hear yourself or you hear yourself in recording, it always makes you think you want to gag is actually because you don't hear yourself. I hear myself right now through the bones in my neck. I don't hear myself the way I really am. What Tim Keller argues is no one can see themselves or hear themselves except for the vantage point of an outside set of eyes or ears. If you live in a place where people love you and will not tell you the truth about yourself, you will not have self-knowledge. You will not grow you will not become the person you need to be. Love without truth is deadly. The same line, truth without love is also damaging. If you speak the truth to someone without love, there's a harshness, there's a coldness, there's no warmth. A lot of times what you can do is you can uh, cause them to harden their heart before they even hear what you're saying. What may be in your heart if you speak the truth without love is that you really care more about truth than you do with the individual. 
you're self-righteous or you're arrogant. Those who speak the truth without love may love winning arguments more than they love people. They may love enjoying showing off how much they know versus loving the individual. I once heard a pastor say that truth without love does not accomplish truth, and love without truth does not accomplish love. The reality is we need both of those together, working in balance. We need them together to accomplish growing up into Christ. But here's what I found in my brief ministry experience. No one does this perfectly. No one. No one has mastered this. And some of you right here, you might be thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm gentle, I'm nice, I'm warm. But I tend to be a person who doesn't really tell the truth. I don't say what, what needs to be said. Some of you in here might be very direct, very truthful. But you can communicate without love. What, what is the, the fix? What's the solution to this? If no one does it perfectly, holding the truth in perfect balance. And why don't we do this? Because we're selfish, self-centered. We need to be surrounded in deep community with individuals who will speak truth to us, who we can practice loving, being patient, being kind, understanding that even when it's communicated not as lovingly as we like, we still receive it because we know they're, they want our good. They're seeking our flourishing. We need to be gracious and kind and patient with, others need to be kind and gracious and patient with us as we stumble forward in communicating truth to them. And we need a community that is going to continually call us to this balance, I think primarily through the gospel. Where do we see perfect balance of love and truth? The gospel. The gospel is a message of truth. Christ died, came to die. He came because of truth, the truth that we are sinners, the truth that we were lost, we are hopeless. We don't have what it takes within ourselves to make it. We are rebels against God. The gospel truth is that apart from someone paying for the penalty of our sins, we are deserving of just punishment, the wrath of God. But the gospel is also love. Jesus went to the cross. He endured great suffering and pain because he loved us. The gospel is the greatest message of truth and love because the more you understand the gospel, the more you take the depths of the gospel down into your heart, the more you saturate and marinate your heart in it, you grow as being a person who speaks in truth and love. And I think this is how it can practically play itself out. The gospel humbles us so that we don't need to prove ourselves. We don't need to communicate to others to prove that we're right. We don't need to communicate to others to put them down, to show our superiority. We don't, the gospel frees us and leads to great humility so that we aren't harsh, we aren't abrasive when we speak. But at the same time, the gospel also leads us to be truthful. The gospel also frees us from uh, needing to please people. In the gospel, we receive the perfect affirmation, the perfect acceptance, the perfect uh, approval from Christ. So we're no longer enslaved by what other people think about us. We're no longer enslaved by having to please others. We're freed from that, that uh, trap. We can now speak the truth in love. But this happens as a community of people come and center themselves and study and work and apply the gospel together. A group of people that can point out our blind spots in which we can grow out of our maturity. A group of people who love us enough to speak the truth to us. But what Paul says at the end here is that everyone has to have a part, like everyone needs to get in on this. Everyone has a part to play. It takes a team effort. Verse 16 uh, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Number four, we grow into Christ by working properly in the body, and we all have a part to play in this. There's not sidelines on Jesus' team. There's not a bench in the church. Everyone has a role to play. If God has placed you in the mountain church, he has placed you here for a reason. For some unknown reason, God has placed me to be your pastor. I'm, with, I'm what you got. <laughs> God has given you unique giftings, uh, abilities, skills, roles to play in helping one another become like Christ. And I know it 
now even thinking about just how central the church seems to Paul, how central community seems to Paul, myself, for a lot of, I think, and to think, especially in just in our culture that we live up in, it's, it's scary to think about this. Taking that first step can be intimidating. Like, okay, I'm, I'm putting a lot of trust in these people to be in community with them. You know, what if these people are terrible? <laughs> Do these people really love me? It happens when we all uh, take the risk, we all step in together, we all have a part to play, we all try to work together to help each other become like Christ. There's a guy named David Paulison, who is the executive director of Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, the CCEF. He said in an interview on the local church's role in sanctification that I wanted to share with you, I thought it was really helpful on becoming like Christ. He says it like this, the local church is integral in sanctification from all sorts of different directions. There is an obvious direction I will come at, and there's a less obvious one. Every single fruit of sanctification gets expressed within the context of the church. Second, the way the church blesses us in sanctification, but the church is, and unity in the church is the very goal, the very goal of sanctification involves the church. He says there is a sense in which um, I am not perfected until you are perfected. We are not perfected until every one of us, the children of the living God, is perfected, which means that I have a stake in another person's struggle as part of my own sanctification. That's what he's saying. Sanctification is not a private endeavor. It is not a moral self-improvement project. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that because the actual things that are improved about us tie us to the welfare of other people. How we become like Christ happens in the church. It has to happen in the church. And we can make this community happen here if you are willing to make it happen. If three of us want this and the rest of us don't, it's not going to happen. There has to be a buy-in of the church. We want, we want to do this together. I want to be in a community where people will speak the truth to me in love. I know I need it. I don't always like to think about I need it. I don't always like to hear the truth, but I know I need it. I know the most significant, meaningful, impactful times in my life as a Christian has been when someone has taken me aside and lovingly spoke the truth to me, has revealed a blind spot that I had. This happened about uh, a year ago. Um, a good friend of mine told me, Daniel, you're a people pleaser. That was so freeing. It helped me understand and it helped me really cherish the gospel even more deeply than I do now. Have you had moments in the life where someone lovingly spoke the truth to you that was so helpful and powerful? Maybe you're here this morning and someone has spoken the truth to you and it really burned you. Like there was no love whatsoever and it was harsh, it cut you down and it's left you scared to, to be a part of any kind of church or community or uh, gospel-centered family. Like you don't want that because of the hurt that you experienced. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, I, I am kind of that people pleaser. I am the person who... Uh, really think of myself as a loving person. I don't want to speak the truth. I don't want people to speak the truth to me because I know there's things in my life that if someone got close enough, they would see and point out. So I'm just going to distance myself. Let me just encourage you this morning as we close. There is nothing sweeter than knowing Christ and being loved by his church. It's scary. It's a risk. It, it's uncomfortable. It's awkward at times. But as people really get to know you, and not the you that you put on uh, in an event like this, put a smile on, everything's hunky-dory, but really gets to know you, lives with you, sees you fight with your wife, sees you get mad at your children, sees your ugliness, still loves you and will communicate truth to you, it's nothing sweeter. I haven't experienced that since starting uh, this church, and I don't, I don't think I can do anything other than that now that I've experienced it. If you're here this morning and you haven't, you haven't experienced that, let me encourage you to, to join us. Gather with us. Be, consider joining uh, in community with us as we seek to become like Christ. We're going to fail you. We're going to mess up. We're going to speak the truth, sometimes not the most lovingly, and we're not going to tell you the truth when we probably should. But we're all stumbling forward together trying to become like Christ.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, you would continue to bless us as a church. That you would be gracious and kind to us. Father, I thank you for the, the people, the leaders, the, the body of believers that you are forming at the Mountain Church. The people that you have brought to us and, and we have gone to them. Father, I pray that as we grow, as as uh, others become interested in, in joining the church or connecting with us in community, that uh, we would be opening and welcoming, accepting. We would cherish and love the fact that you are growing us, that you want us to grow. I pray that we would not uh, become stagnant or uh, complacent in our faith, individually or as a church, that we would continually be a people who wanting to become like you, who are seeking to grow in intimacy with one another, who are seeking to be equipped by your leaders, who are, who are seeking to do the work of ministry, who are seeking to speak the truth and love with one another, who are seeking to all have the part to play in this process. Father, I pray that you would release any burdens, any hurts, that you would uh, grant forgiveness and, and healing to those who might have been burned and hurt by the church, those who are burned or hurt by someone who was really harsh, really mean to them, that really burned them, really hurt them. I pray that you would uh, drive the gospel deeper into the hearts of those who are people pleasers, who are quote-unquote grace givers, that they would realize since the approval and acceptance and a perfect love that you, you have for them in Christ, they are no longer uh, stressed, worried, enslaved to needing to prove and, and please others. I pray that you would teach us what true love means. That you would teach us to be a people who uh, seek the good of one another, seek the good of the city, seek the good of our neighborhood uh, because of the gospel. So, Father, we ask that we would respond now with hearts of uh, unity and, and fellowship with you and unity and fellowship with one another as we share a meal together and respond in praise to you through song. In your son's name I pray. Amen.